That is the second to last, or the third to last um, prophecy in the Old Testament. Haggai chapter 2, we'll be reading together verses 20 through 23 for our last message in the book of Haggai. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. We ask our beloved Lord that you would help us to understand how you have the power and the might and the strength and your sovereign hand that shakes the nations that you cast down and that you lift up. And we do thank you, Lord, that you are a God who has chosen Zerubbabel to be um, one of the ancestors of even Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray that you would help us to see that promise of Jesus, that fulfillment of this prophecy given unto Haggai, that we would see his glory found not only in this text, but throughout all of Scripture, for we, found, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Much of Scripture teaches us about two alternatives, very stark alternatives. The first is that promise of the gospel that you would either be a seed of the woman or a seed of the serpent. There's no riding the fence um, Jesus um, said that you either for me or against me. And the people uh, under Joshua's leadership were told, choose this day who you shall serve. They were giving an ultimatum. Are you going to serve God, the one who delivered you from slavery in Egypt? Or are you going to choose and serve the gods or the idols of the nations around you? Choose this day whom you shall serve. And as we get to today's text, um, there's an alternative here. There is a choosing between two ways. You could either reject God's grace and be shaken and cast down, or you could be those who are chosen of the Lord and serve the Lord. Jesus again said, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather together with me scatters abroad. Um, the promise of Haggai is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, you look at verse 9. It says, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. 
There was a promise of a latter glory. We know that this temple was not going to look or have the outer physical glory of the first. The first temple that was built under Solomon probably had the most gold ever used in any building structure in the history of mankind. The wealth of Solomon was far surpassed any king that we know of in history. And that glory of that temple is going to be surpassed by the glory of this second temple. And historians say that this second temple was later expanded by King Herod. It was beautified. It was a grand building. Even the apostles remarked how glorious and how grand that temple was in in the sight of Jesus. But the reason that we find that the glory of this temple surpassed the glory of the first temple is because the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, filled the temple with his presence. That he walked into this temple, he taught and he brought the peace that was promised long ago through his person and through his work. That the second temple would be fulfilled in that Jesus, who would be called God with us, Emmanuel, would, dwell, would come in and serve in this temple. And that is the filling of the, the latter glory being greater than in the first glory. Again, the, the main focus of Haggai is that the prophet was sent to the people and told to rebuild. The reason they had to rebuild in the first place was that the temple, the first temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar because of the disobedience of the people. They were sent back from captivity by Cyrus the Persian to rebuild. The purpose for them to even go back to the promised land was that this king, Cyrus, was told, was given a declaration from the Lord to tell the people to go back and rebuild. And they had, gentle, uh, they had opposition from the Gentiles in the area who caused them to stop. And they held off for four years, not only four years, and then four years became 18 years, and they still never started back up again. That's why the word of the Lord came to Haggai so that this temple would be rebuilt. As we look at today's text and we focus on these uh, final verses of Haggai, God calls you to embrace the Lord's way of salvation or be destroyed. And that's what's mentioned there in today's text. Let's look at first the, the first main point, the Lord's shaking, and then we'll look secondly at the Lord's choosing. Let's look at the Lord's shaking in that first main point in verse 20 and following. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. Notice first. God is the one. God is the one in charge of history. God is the one who causes nations to be cast down and even overthrowing not only nations but entire empires. During the time of this um, prophecy, Persia 
was the great superpower, or you could say Persia was the, uh, the one who was the empire who reigned. God had cast down Babylon before them. And then later, God cast down Persia as well. Uh, rather than having a Persian empire, the only, uh, I guess you could say, the only remnant we have of Persian history is nice Persian rugs and Ottomans and things of that, of that sort. There's not really a lot of influence of Persia, you could say, in the world today, except in those, those relics, you could say. The Greek Empire arose, and God cast them down as well. After them, the Roman Empire. And in due time, God cast them down in his plan. All this is a fulfillment of that prophecy given to Daniel of this great statue um, that was basically smashed when that stone came down from heaven, hit that, the feet of uh, clay and iron, which represented Rome, and then the whole statue then collapsed. That stone cut without hands represents Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. When Christ comes into the picture, there is a casting down and there is a destruction of empires because he says that he was going to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of the nations i think it's real interesting how it goes on and talks about um in james 4 james 4 god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble that's usually thought of in a personal level, isn't it? God gives grace. He, he gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. But the same thing goes for nations. A, a ruler, a nation of people that are lifted up and proud, God casts down. But for a nation that humbles themselves and embraces Jesus Christ, God lifts them up and gives grace. Psalm 2, again, we are to kiss the son, lest he be angry in the way and we perish. That's the charge. That is the challenge, or that is the command of God, that they are to give obedience to the son, his eternal blessed son, Jesus Christ. Um, this part about shaking the heavens and the earth mentions uh, it, a something of a sort of an earthquake. And the place that we find that, I, I would like us to hold our place here in Haggai, but turn with me to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Starting in verse 47. Uh, well, actually, we'll pick up at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there 
when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave, it, gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Here we have the text in Haggai talking about God shaking heavens and the earth. And here we have a fulfillment in the person of Christ, God shaking the heavens and the earth with the coming of his son, especially the, the veil being torn down the middle in two and that things for, for, the, for Jerusalem would never be the same. And the fulfillment of God shaking the heavens and the earth, especially for the Jewish religion, is that God then later, within a generation, caused the Romans to sack and seize Jerusalem and then to even tear down that temple stone after stone upon another until it was just a bare foundation again. There was no longer going to be a sacrificial system because the one and only true sacrifice, the one and only mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, finally came and there was to be no more sacrificial system. But even 2,000 years after his coming, God continues to shake the nations. He says he will overthrow kingdoms and destroy the powers of the nations. He talks about destroying, or I'm sorry, overthrowing chariots and riders, the horse and their riders. These are the weapons of war. God's going to cast down the weapons of war. If you think about this in modern history and what's even going on right now with the war between Ukraine and Russia, the weapons of war that were the mightiest weapons that were feared during World War II, namely the tank, has almost become somewhat obsolete at the point of being destroyed by a single soldier with a, a shoulder-fired rocket with technology that can guide a missile and destroy a tank. I think it's really interesting that the weapons of war that at one time were fearsome or, no, or cast down even in the battlefield today. Verse 22 talks about everyone will be, um, it says everyone by the sword of another. He's going to cast down the horses and the riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. Um, God in history has taken his enemies and set the sword of the enemies of Christ against one another. I don't know if you think, about, think of it this way, but both Nazi, the, the, the Nazism of Germany, the Nazi party of Germany, and the Communist Party of Russia were both not friends of Christianity. They were opposed to Christianity. But at one time, Russia 
and Germany were, were getting together. Stalin and Hitler were making pacts. They were teaming up together. But thank God, he then put them against one another and he set the sword of one against the other. And thank God that he did, because if not, I don't know if we could have won the war. The same thing goes with the Muslim religion. God has uh, set the Sunnis and the Shias against one another. I, I, that division of them being opposed to one another and fighting one another goes back, I think, that I, I read recently, all the way back to the 14th century. If not, if all Muslims throughout the world were united against Christ and his kingdom, I think we would be in trouble. However, God has set the sword of one against the other, and that is a merciful providence in God's uh, affairs for us and for his church. God is wise and powerful and sovereign in the affairs of men. And again, we might ask, what, what is God doing in this fight, in this war between Russia and Ukraine? Well, I think one thing he's doing is he's humbling the Russians. The Russians who thought that they would have a quick victory over little Ukraine, uh, a, a country that had, from what I hear, uh, the largest mass of tanks in the world has been, I think, humiliated on the battlefield, even from Ukraine. Why does God shake the heavens and the earth? Why does he cause these things to happen? It's for the benefit of his people, for his church, for his holy ones, his chosen ones. Let's look next at the Lord's choosing. Verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, before we determine what this is, what is a signet ring? A signet ring was a special ring that a king would have that had a, an emblem, or you could say a crest of some sort, that was a special representation of the rule of that king. It was on the right hand of the king, and whenever he sent out a declaration, he would imprint that signet ring on that declaration, and they knew that it was coming from the king. That was something invaluable for the king, almost as invaluable as the crown, which is more representation. But the signet ring, you could say, almost unlocked the power of him giving forth those proclamations. It's to say that someone is the signet ring of the Lord, it's, it's like saying they are the right-hand man of, of God. But what do we know about this Zerubbabel and how did he become so important and how is he considered, you could say, maybe one the right-hand man of God? It talks about Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel. Now, we don't have time to read through these genealogies, but if you look at two genealogies and you want to research this on your own, Matthew 1 has a genealogy and also Luke Three has another genealogy, and if you look at both genealogies, they trace back Jesus Christ through Joseph. What's interesting is that Solomon's son, I'm sorry, David's son Solomon is listed in one genealogy, especially in Matthew 1, but in Luke 3, 
The brother of Solomon, Nathan, is listed in the other genealogy. And some scholars look at Zerubbabel and that he is a bridge, and he is found in both of these genealogies as coming from David, from two different lines, you could say. The fulfillment of why Zerubbabel was important is that God had promised that he would keep a ruler on the throne from the line of David all the way into the coming of the Messiah. And Zerubbabel was a, an important part of that lineage. He was an ancestor of Jesus Christ. So it's through Zerubbabel that Jesus Christ comes into the world as the fulfillment. You could say Jesus is the ultimate promised chosen one to redeem the people of God. That unbroken line of rulers all the way back from David to Christ. Again, Jesus Christ is the true son of David, the one promised to be the redeemer of his people. He, Jesus, is the true signet ring of the Father. He is the true right-hand man of the Father, the one through whom the glory, the latter glory, has filled the temple and even beyond. God's choosing Zerubbabel is not unique. Why in the world does God choose a person anyway? I think the place that we want to look next is Deuteronomy 7. Let's turn there. Deuteronomy 7, 7. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 11. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord, your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him, he will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Now, verse 7 talks about being more in number. You could say that would be an advantage maybe. Well, what about God did not choose you because you were more wise, because you were more handsome, because you were any way more talented or deserving, the reason God chose Zerubbabel and the reason God chooses any of us is found in this text in verse 8. Because the Lord loved you. He set his sovereign love upon you. That's why he chose you. And then keeping of his oath and his promises. And one of those oaths and promises is that God promises to be a, a God unto us 
and to our children. He fulfilled that promise in Abraham and was a God unto Abraham's seed after him. And God promises to be a God unto us and to our children as long as we are faithful to even teach our children in the ways that they should go as well. I know this is a very familiar hymn. But in God's choosing us, the way he does so, in amazing grace, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. It's God's grace that even helps you open your eyes and see that you're a sinner in the first place. To see that you desperately need Jesus Christ. If it's not God's grace to open your eyes that you have to fear the consequences of sin, you're never going to come along. But it's God's grace that taught your heart to fear and God's grace that your fears he relieved through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, God gives you two alternatives. Either be shaken and cast down or embrace Jesus Christ, the ultimate chosen one who Zerubbabel pointed to. You must embrace Jesus Christ or you will perish in the way. That one, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord of glory, the one who the fullness of God, the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form, died and suffered on the cross so that you would not have to perish, so that you would not have to suffer the pains of hell. And he will continue to shake. The greatest shaking is actually more like a burning. One day God is going to come back and the elements and the earth will be, I like to think of it as being recycled and burned up with great heat so that he would recreate it into a new heavens and a new earth. And then what's going to happen? Those who are his, they won't suffer the fire. They will be called up into the heavens into glory They'll be given new bodies, and then that we'll have that presence of Christ always with us. The light of glory will be the Lamb of the new heavens and the new, the new earth. The new Jerusalem will come down from heaven unto earth, and we will be forever with the Lord, enjoying a new blessed creation, being made with bodies like unto the glorious resurrected body of Jesus Christ. There is a great day of shaking that still is going on and will continue to go on that leads to that ultimate day of great shaking. Let us pray. We ask our blessed Lord that you would help us not to take this text lightly, but to realize that you are the God who shakes heaven and earth. And we pray that, that we would be set upon the foundation of Jesus our Lord and upon that foundation that we would be able to withstand that shaking that is coming. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to have our lives built upon the foundation, upon that solid rock of Jesus Christ, our only true hope in this life or in the life to come. And we pray, oh, Father, that you would help us to tell others how they may escape the wrath to come through Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask it in his name. Amen. Let's uh, turn to 428. We'll stand and sing 
428 says, not that I did choose thee. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>